And we're going to look at the first 11 verses for the most part in, uh, in that chapter. I'm glad you're here. Hope you've had a good day. It's good to worship with you again tonight. Um, we've got a group, big group, going to camp. And they left uh, 1 o'clock this afternoon, a little bit after 1. And I know they're going to have a very hot and good week there, right? So we hope all goes well with them. They'll be back, Lord willing, on Friday. And Kyle told me that they think they're going to have a really, we, we, took, we took a big group and then uh, other churches come this week as well. And they think they're probably going to have one of the biggest weeks, uh, biggest week fours, I think, that they've had in a long time. So that's, that's exciting. They'll have a bunch of, bunch of people there. I wanted to uh, give you an update on Isabel Altman. They found out this afternoon what was going on with her. She's been in the hospital this week, you know. It's a kind of food, they, they got a test back. It's a kind of food poison called Shigella. If I'm saying that right, Shigella. Uh, I looked it up, Googled it, and it's uh, genetically closely related to E. coli, to give you an idea. Um, and so she is, uh, she's, they think she's going to be fine. Uh, she's had it for several days now. A lot of times I think it runs its course, but they also may choose to treat it with antibiotics. So I don't know if that decision has been made yet. But anyway, uh, just pray for Isabel. She remains in Children's Hospital. And uh, uh, so she's uh, been pretty sick for since Monday, I guess. So about five or six days, she's not felt well at all. And one of them, you know, anyway, uh, just, just pray for her. And... Uh, Seems like there was something else I was going to mention to you about about our trip. We uh, we thank you for your prayers while we were gone to Tanzania. It was a good trip, and we'll um, we'll say more about that later on. But Job Job thirty eight. I think I mentioned to you this book I read a while back called um, Everything Happens for a Reason. Subtitle is and other lies I've loved. That's a very important part of the the book title. Everything happens for a reason and other lies I've loved. It's by Kate Bowler and. It's an interesting title, a little bit of a provocative title probably, just because I think she's making this point or trying to make this point that, uh, that um, we, we use this cliche, you know, we throw this cliche around and really don't think about the implications of that. And, and she wrote it as a response to, or, or she wrote it after she was, she was diagnosed with cancer and um, she's in her 30s, she was diagnosed with uh, colon cancer. And, it's, and her story is pretty interesting. She's a professor of divinity, at, uh, professor of theology at Duke. And, um, and so she had put her PhD, her dissertation was done on the prosperity gospel, which we talked about a few weeks ago on a Sunday evening, talked about that a little bit. Prosperity gospel movement that is very popular in America. Lots of famous televangelists, uh, lots of books been written, you know, lots of money that, um, that goes into the movement. And the gist of it is, that it is that if you if you're faithful to God, God will bless you financially with good health. And so it's sometimes called the health and wealth gospel or the prosperity gospel, uh, word of faith churches, you know stuff like that. Anyway, she was doing a dissertation on that and 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 ended up becoming a book called Blessed. Now say all that to say this: she, it's interesting that while she was doing this research for the, this health and wealth thing and writing writing her dissertation about it. And she, her dissertation became the book. She found out that she, in her 30s, had colon cancer. And so she's a person of faith. And so she was wrestling with this whole notion. 
and spending so much time in these churches where she heard this message over and over again as she was doing her research, if you're faithful to God, good things happen. You'll have good health. You know, you'll, you'll be wealthy. And if you're not wealthy and you're not healthy, then something's wrong with your faith. You don't believe enough or you're, you're doing some sort of bad thing that, that uh, is causing these blessings to, to be withheld from you. So then she wrote this second book about this, um, this struggle to come to grips with it. I'll say all that, uh, not to give you the conclusion. I don't, I, I, I don't, I didn't get a discernible conclusion from, from the book. And I think she, this, maybe this is the way we often feel with, with struggles. And to an extent, maybe that reflects the message of Job. And that is that the answer isn't always clear, that you don't always get this divine voice from heaven that gives you the answer. And, and, and maybe even if you do get the divine voice from heaven, like Job did, the answer isn't clearly revealed to us. So with, with, with that in mind, uh, the book of Job, you probably know the gist of it. I'm not going to spend time on the story so much as only to say just the, you know, the bare bones of this. You know the story of Job is that Job was a righteous man, a godly man. He was faithfully serving the Lord. And you have this divine counsel of sorts, which is an interesting story in and of itself where sons of God, the angels, present, presented themselves before God. And Satan basically made this accusation that the only reason people serve you is because you're good to them. If you take away the good stuff from them, they wouldn't be faithful to you. And so God said, have you considered my servant Job? So as, as the story goes on, God allows Satan to, to test Job, to, to take things away from Job, to destroy all of his financial possessions, every, everything. And then when that didn't do it, God allowed him to touch his family, and he took his kids away. And, and, and so it was an you know, awful, awful thing that happened. That's all in the first chapter, first, first chapter of Job. The rest of the book, for the most part, through chapter 37, well, all of it through chapter 37 is a dialogue. Job, Job has some buddies who come, and the, the gist of their message is very, very consistent with that of the ancient world. And, and it's consistent with the way a lot of folks view it today, especially people in, the, in this prosperity gospel thing, movement. And their idea was that if you do right, you will get good stuff. And if you don't get good stuff... It's because you're not doing right or because you're doing wrong. And that was the message of Job's buddies when they came to him. Essentially, Job, you know, you, man, you know, uh, you'll straighten up. This will go away. It'll get better. Just confess your sin. Don't try to hide it. Everybody knows you've done something. So just, just do it. And then another, and Job has this conversation with him. Job says, essentially, I, I haven't, I haven't done, I'm not hiding anything. I'm, I'm trying to be righteous. So we have another friend at the end, near the end, who comes along, Elihu, and he, he seems to reflect a message that's closer to what we know to be true, but even Elihu isn't, um, isn't speaking truth. Job makes some accusations during the time. And he was a good man. God says he was a good man. He was a righteous man, upright. But Job says some things in here he shouldn't have said. And he essentially says on several different occasions, God is not being just. He's not being fair because if he were fair, if he were just, if everything worked the way it ought to work, then I wouldn't be suffering like this. Now, Job disagrees with his friends on his righteousness or lack of. He, he believes that he's righteous. They say he's not. Job disagrees with them on, on that part and whether or not he's righteous. But he agrees with their basic worldview. And that basic worldview is that 
If you do right, God will bless you. So we come to chapter 38. And Job has been pleading for an answer. He's, he's said multiple times, I wish I could have an audience with God. I wish God would just listen to me. I wish God would answer me. I wish God would tell me what in the world is going on. I would love to be able to talk to God, and yet he is silent. God is just silent. Here I am hurting and struggling. And Job gets an answer. It's a fascinating story, the book of Job. I don't even... I'm not even going to pretend to try to cover the message of Job in one short lesson on a Sunday evening. But this is a fascinating response. Job, God's answer goes from chapter 38, all of chapter 38, all of chapter 39. Uh, Job gives a little bit of an answer, or basically he, he just says, I'm not going to say anything, chapter 40. And God goes on, the rest of chapter 40, all of chapter 41. And then Job offers a confession. We'll look briefly at what Job says in response to this. But just, just, just that, with that background, all this stuff going on, Job has suffered, I mean, terribly. He said some things to God that, that you can't. I mean, I read this and I'm like, yeah, I, I can relate. You could probably relate to that. I mean, not in the suffering, but if you were experiencing that, would you not say that? Would you not say something like that? So we can relate to this, this struggle that Job is having. And, and so the book of Job stands before us not as an explanation of suffering because ultimately it doesn't give us the answer to this. It doesn't say, okay, here it is. God's just trying to bring out character in you. It doesn't say that actually. Now maybe that's part of an answer. But the book of Job didn't say that. So look at, look at God's answer to Job. And... Well, let's just, let's just look at the first 11 verses. I mean, you, is, is, the, is the initial response. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and, and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Now, pause there just for a second because God did, his answer doesn't start till verse 4, but... He answered him out of this whirlwind. I don't know what that looked like, a massive, you know, F5 tornado or, you know, a hurricane. I, I don't know exactly what it was, but it must have been impressive. You think about, you think about this great storm that descends on Job out, all of a sudden, and he's been questioning God. He's been saying, I want an answer from God, and all of a sudden this storm overshadows Job, and then you hear this voice coming out of the storm. And the, and the voice says, who in the world has the audacity, essentially, to accuse me of injustice? Who in the world darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who in the world says things about me and does so ignorantly? That's what God says. I imagine by this point, Job is regretting a lot of the things he said, don't you think? Uh, when this voice comes out of the storm, and, and, then, and then he says, basically, um, stand up like a man. We're going to talk. You won't talk to me? I don't, I don't want to portray God in a way that's inconsistent with the text, especially the, you know, the overall text of Scripture, because God... God is above our knowledge, and, and, and I want to be respectful in talking about him, but, but, we, but at the same time, when you, when you read this, and this, this is very poetic language, by the way. It's, it's very poetic. But this voice essentially says this to Job. 
um, how dare you talk about God when you don't know what you're talking about? Stand up like a man and answer me. I'm going to ask you, I'm go, you've been asking a lot of questions of me. I'm first going to ask you some questions. Let's see what you got. This is just the introduction, verses 4 through 11, but, but here they are. Basically following roughly the days of creation. Uh, it's, it's not exact, but sort of it follows the days of creation. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no further and here shall your proud waves be stayed. It goes on. I, you know, you, I'm not going to read all that. You probably want to keep reading. It's, it's fascinating. Uh, and and maybe, you, maybe you spend some time here because you know, he goes on and he says all sorts of things. Verses 4 through 11 are just the introduction, the first part of creation, but they set the tone for the entire section. I'm not going to do it because we don't have time to do it. And I, I want you just to see the, kind of the gist of what he's doing here. In verses 4 through 7, he, he talks about the creation. He, he's speaking poetically. Don't read these for some sort of scientific, uh, pre-scientific understanding of what creation was like. That's not the intention of this. He's reflecting, uh, the language here is reflecting an ancient understanding of, of uh, construction. And it's, it's poetic language anyway. But he says, you know, where, where were you, Job? Where, where in the world, where, look at verse 21, slightly different context, but he says, you know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. He's talking about the beginning, you know, the creation of light there, the, the dwelling place of light. You, you, you know, don't you, Joe, because you're old. Using some different hints in the book, people speculate Job was 70 years old by this point. Know a lot by the time you're 70, don't you? So, Job, you're 70 years old. Were you there? Were you there? When I lay the foundations of the earth, you're saying a lot of bold things, Job. Tell me if you have understanding. He talks about measurements. He, he talks about stretching the line. I mean, typical you know, construction kind of language. Sinking bases, a, a cornerstone. In, in verse 7, the morning stars sang together and the sons of God. That's, that's poetic language, biblical Old Testament language for the angels, the, uh, the angelic creation. Where were you, Job, when the angels started singing when they saw the world that I'd created? Where were you? You're a grown man. You're, you're, uh, you're, you're an... You're somebody who's been around for a few decades, so surely you know. And then verses 8 through 11, he, he talks about the sea. And again, talks, uses this, this poetic kind of language of, of boundaries, shutting the sea in with doors, 
when it burst out from the womb. He's using birth language. It was conceived behind doors, the, the kind of language conceived behind doors, but then it burst out from the womb. The, the clouds are what I put on it when it was an infant, uh, the swaddling band, you know, I, I put thick darkness. So it's, it's, it's birth language, conception and birth language here, talking about the ocean. I prescribe limits for it, and, and some scholars kind of extend that metaphor a little bit, and perhaps this is what the language suggests. You're talking about a, a child after having been born, you, you teach it boundary, teach him or her boundaries, you know, prescribe limits for it, set bars and doors. So you, you got a playpen, you put your baby in a playpen, and you make sure it doesn't get out, out of its boundaries. So God, God says, here's what I did with the ocean. Conceived it, it burst forth from the womb, and I said to the ocean, here are your boundaries. Here's your playpen. And, and don't, go out of the, don't go out of your pen. So that's the kind of language God is using here. Thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Uh, I'm tempted to go on with this. I'm not going to do it. But there's just all sorts of creation language here. you know. And, and, and he goes on. He talks about light. He talks about the stars. He talks about creation. And then beyond that, he talks about the animals, specific talks about Leviathan, he talks about behemoth on, uh, at, at the end of this, after Job responds. But that's the tone of it. That's the tone of it. And after he gets to a stopping point, I guess, in fact, turn over a page to chapter 40 or a page or two to chapter 40, because I want you to see what Job does in response to this lengthy discourse from God. The Lord, verse, four, verse 1, the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. I suppose there was a, there was a pause there. And Job said, i got to say something. And so he said, verse 4, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Again, very poetic kind of language. Look what God does then. Verse 6, then the Lord answered Job out of the world when he's not done. My guess is Job was thinking, please. I, I, maybe Job was wanting to say something. I, 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 get, I, I, get the, I get the point. I don't, I don't need any more of this. God's not done. He speaks out of the whirlwind. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? And he goes on and talks about behemoth in verse 15 and chapter 41. He talks about Leviathan and, and then you get to chapter 42. And I want you to look at Job's response. And then the book basically ends after this. But Job 42, Job answered the Lord and said, verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge. Remember that? That's what God said earlier. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. 
So God goes on. God rebukes Job's friends. The book comes to a conclusion after God restored Job's fortunes, gave him a bigger family. And you know, he blessed him. And then the book comes to an end. And this is a fascinating story, isn't it? I mean, there's so much here. And I don't, again, I don't pretend to like, sum all this up for you. But it's, it's interesting. I want to make a couple of observations for you tonight. Maybe as you wrestle with this sort of thing. Maybe you wrestle with it personally through struggles that you've had or are having. Maybe you wrestle with it because you see struggles in the lives of others or you see things going on in the world and you think, this doesn't make sense. Maybe some of these you know, critics of God have a point with their accusations against him. And this is one of the most commonly used uh, proofs of God's non-existence. You know? And that is that if there were an omnipotent, omnibenevolent God, the world wouldn't function as it does now. That's that's essentially an argument that convinces a lot of people, you know. If God was all-powerful, if he was all, all good, then you wouldn't have bad things happening because God could stop them. If he's good, he would want to stop them. If he's powerful, he could stop them. But he doesn't stop them, therefore an all-good, all-powerful God doesn't exist. That old argument against God's existence. And so Job is, is sort of a, I don't want to say Job's an answer to that. This, is, this story is an explanation of how we ought to think about God when we question him. This book does not tell us not to question God. I don't think we ought to walk away from this story, especially in view of the context of the, of the wisdom literature. You, I mean, you go to the next one, go to Psalms, and you're going to find a lot of questions of God, right? You read Psalms lately? A lot of questions in there. I don't think God would have put Psalms 150 psalms, many of them questioning things about God, if he would put that in sacred literature, had he meant for us to interpret Job as saying, don't you dare question me. So I don't think that's the conclusion we come to. Don't question God. But, but one of the things that we do need to see here is and John Walton, I was reading on this particular, he's done a lot of writing on creation and a lot of writing on Job and he and he says one thing that we need to recognize one thing God is saying here clearly is that God's nature is not embedded in the creation as it is now, think about that for a second let me say that again God's nature that is his attributes are not embedded in the creation as it is now and so what we see in creation doesn't necessarily reflect the attributes of the God who is. You see, in the ancient world, what they believed about their gods, and there were, we don't have records of atheists in the ancient world. They were theists, polytheists. The Jews, of course, became, were, were monotheists. But what they believed about their polytheistic world was that their gods were not just. Their gods were not just. Now, they may have inclinations toward justice, but they were not just in the sense that they were perfectly just. They didn't even believe that. You know why they didn't believe that their multiple gods were just? Look around you. The world itself is not a fair place. It's not, it's not just. It's, it, things, things don't happen the way they ought to happen. Therefore, the gods who are must not be just. That was the conclusion they arrived at. And God, in a, in a way, in the book of Job, is responding to that. And he's saying, that is not true of me. God is not saying the world is fair. It's not. He's agreeing with this. 
He's agreeing with a premise that the world is not just. The world is not fair. It, doesn't, it, it certainly doesn't seem like everything works the way that it ought to work. And, and God, is, God is agreeing with that, but he's saying the conclusion from that is wrong. Your conclusion that God is either inactive or, or, or not just, that, that's not right. God's nature, his attributes are not embedded in the creation. And so we look at the world around us and we see injustice. And certainly we see injustice on the part of human beings, and we explain that by saying, well, we live in a fallen world, people are sinful people, and therefore there's going to be injustice, right? But what about, what about, the, what about the so-called acts of God, um, natural disasters? What, 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 about, what about those? What would we conclude about God if that were the only evidence we had? If, if we just had, you know, the world itself is usually called like general creation, um, the world as it is, what would we conclude about God if we only had that? If you look in Romans, would you conclude that God is a loving, benevolent, just God? The ancient world didn't come to that conclusion. They came to the conclusion that gods were angry. They're not, they're, they're kind of, um, I mean, you, you know, read, read some literature of mythology, right? Uh, the gods are, are bitter, they're, they're petty, they're arguing, they, you know, they're capricious, you know, all this. Paul says what we learn from creation, he says we don't learn, well, he doesn't say that we learn about God's love from creation. He says we learn, Romans 1 verse 20, he says we learn about God's power. But we don't learn about God's love. So in the book of Job, in, in God's answer to Job, and in these concluding chapters of the book, God is saying, you don't learn about my nature from creation. But, or you don't learn about my, my justice and my love from creation. My, my attributes are not embedded in it. Now, flowing out of that, how do we think about this? How do we think about God in view of um, um, bad things going on in the world, um, bad things happening to good people, uh, natural disasters that, that happen, and we don't understand why innocent people suffer? How, how, do we, how do we wrestle with that? Book of Job doesn't give us some of this definitive answer that, that explains everything. And we need to be very careful that we don't respond with cliches and, and with um, and, and kind of, I don't know, everything happens for a reason sort of thing. Uh, because that's inadequate to explain an infinite God. And at the end of the book of Job, there is a sense in which God says, I am just, Job, even when you can't see it in my creation. I am a God who is sovereign. I am powerful. I am just. And you need to respond to me with a posture of trust. At the end of the day, that's it. You need to respond to me with a posture of trust. It doesn't mean you don't ask questions. Go to the book of Psalms. They will articulate your questions quite well. So ask the questions. But ask the questions from a posture of trust. I think that, and I'm, I know I'm oversimplifying uh, a message from the book of Job, but if I were trying to oversimplify it, I believe that's what God is saying to Job here. And again, well, let's don't be guilty of the same 
thing that Job was guilty of. Let's don't pretend to know more about God than we do. But nonetheless, God reveals himself to us, and we, we can see God. We, we stand on the periphery, as it were, gazing at God and wondering about his ways, and we, we can come to some conclusions about him through the revealed word. Through, through looking at creation, we, we, we learn something of his power. A God who made this must be incredible, but we, we learn about him specifically through special creation, through divine revelation. Now let me, oh yeah, there was, there was something, I want, I want to say this, and then I want to, I'll close, I'll, I'll close quickly, but I've, I've seen this, and I've, I've, I've said things like this too, but I think we need to kind of be nuanced in our use of it. Um, in statements that we make, that you and I make, and we, we do this, we believe in God, um, we, we ask God for something, maybe Maybe the outcome of a surgery, we, we pray, to, and, it, and it comes out well. And we make a statement like, God is good. I believe that with all my heart, you know. I believe that God is good. But what if the surgery hadn't come out well? You know, is God good then? Because it didn't come out well for some other people who prayed. I think we need to be very careful or, or try to be consistent in our, in our speaking about God, God's goodness is not tied to the outcome of the surgery. It's not tied to the tornado lifting up just before it got to your house. His goodness isn't tied to that. His goodness is tied to how he has acted toward us through history and especially through Christ. That's where the goodness of God is seen. And, and we don't need to have this conception that's very close to the ancient world's conception of the gods that we learn about their nature by what they do specifically in response to our prayers. And so um, we, we pray and God does this. God must be good. You see, that kind of conception of God is very similar to this ancient perception that God is, or conception that God is responding to here in Job. God's goodness is not seen in his, not, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm misstating or not stating this as, as clearly. I'm not suggesting that we don't see God's goodness in his actions toward us. Only that God's goodness is not fully manifested in our finite interpretation of how God responds to us in prayer and the things that God does specifically in our lives. Because that's going to run out at some point. You know, if, if our view of God and our trust in God is, is contingent on his doing what we perceive to be good in the world, specifically in our lives, then at some point, bad things are going to happen. We're going to be in a tough spot when that comes. If our trust in him and our view of him are contingent on certain outcomes in our lives. And that, I think, in a, in a you know, very, very much of a, a nutshell is what God is communicating to us through the book of Job. So I wanted, I wanted just to wrestle with that with you for a little bit tonight. Now, book of Job, you know, all sorts of things about suffering. In fact, if we have more time, I had some quotations I want to read you, maybe we'll do this at another time about, about suffering, because Job does talk about suffering, but it doesn't come up with a simplistic answer. It, it doesn't come up with some sort of an answer where God 
you know, says, well, everything happens for a reason. And so when you're suffering, you just need to look for that reason. Well, um, suffering does happen, and God does have purposes in suffering, but it's not so simple as to say that is happening for some specific reason, and I just need to search for it. That, that purpose, looking for God's purpose, is something we look forward to, and we look forward to having clarity on at some point, perhaps, but a lot of times those answers don't come in the short term, you know? If you're not a Christian, though, one of the reasons we're here tonight is to uh, give people an opportunity to uh, maybe make a change in their lives, to, to confess Christ, to put him on in baptism. If you're not a child of his and you want to become a follower of Jesus, we're always prepared here to, to give you that opportunity to become a follower of Jesus Christ. We would baptize you for the forgiveness of your sins tonight. Uh, maybe you, you've done that. Most of you have already, but you need prayers or you need encouragement from your church family here at Hoover. We're here to help however we can spiritually. If you need to respond, I hope you will. Let's, uh, let's stand and sing this song. God, let the word depart and close thine eyes against the light. Poor sinner, harden not thy heart.